0: This week, um, it, wasn't, it wasn't an interview, it was just a, a conversation that I had with someone who had heard a podcast that I had done, uh, or I was invited on, and they just wanted to talk about some of the issues that I had spoken about. And at the end of the conversation, he asked me a question, he said, he asked this question with everybody that he meets for the first time, and the question was, what is the most important thing you've learned in your life? Everyone asked that question before? Do you have an answer at the ready? How would you answer that question? What's the most important thing you've learned in life? Well, for me, it just came right off the top. I said, presence is the most important thing that I've learned in life. And he was surprised at that. He said, "And all the time I've been asking that question, you're the first one who said presence was the most important thing you learned. And I said, well, what was the thing that the, everybody else was saying? What was the most important? You know, give me a for instance. He said, usually it's love. That's not a bad answer, I suppose. He said sometimes it's virtue, you know, that they found virtue in this or that, and that was able—that was the most important thing that they found. But for me, it's presence, and I don't know if you have thought about that being the most important thing. I remember back uh, when I was first starting to work in recovery, and uh, I was uh, talking to a group of uh, of alcoholics and addicts, and the overarching. I suppose, concept, idea, was that the most important thing for them was their sobriety. Sobriety was more important than their family, more important than their spouse, more important than their children. And that, at the beginning, just struck me as so odd. How could sobriety be more important than those things? But what you come to realize is that without sobriety, you can't have any of those things. You can't have a family It is impossible to have a relationship with an active alcoholic or addict because they're not present. The very use of the substances takes them out. They are no longer there. Addiction takes from us our presence. Our obsessions and our compulsions take from us presence. All the things that we focus on, all the things that distract us, take from us presence. And without presence, Nothing else is possible. Without presence, we can't have relationships. We can't connect at all without presence. Over the years of spiritual formation, as, as far as I've gone, this journey has seemed like many things as I've gone through it. Sometimes it seemed like a search for truth. Sometimes it was about salvation. Sometimes it was about serenity and peace, joy and love. But at this point in my life, I realize that everything boils down to presence. The only left thing left at the bottom of the pot, after everything else boils away, it's presence. And everything that we do in our spiritual practice, if you think about it, especially contemplative practice that we have been focused on here for years, decades, is designed to make us present Everything we do is designed to clear out the distractions, clear away anything that would keep us from being right here, right now, completely present. And we've said this many times. God is everywhere, but we're only one place at one time. We are always standing at the corner of here and now. Look up. You'll see the street signs. It's here and now, always. And the only place we'll ever interface with God, the only place we'll ever interface with another person, is here and now. And if we're not there, we're basically nowhere. It's all about presence. These last two weeks, last two messages, the last two Sundays, have all been about presence. And so there's been kind of a a series that kind of took place. It was kind of impromptu. I wasn't planning it, but it just worked out that way. Last week... I made the comment that, and and to me it's a conviction, that presence and love are the same thing. Presence and love are the same thing. And even if I'm wrong, even if they're not, I can tell you this, they are so inextricably tied together that you can't have one without the other. But I think that they are so identified with each other that they really are the same thing. To be completely present to someone is to show them the greatest love. To be completely present to someone, to lose the distinction and the border between you and another is love. Whatever flows from that in terms of your, of your behavior, whatever flows from that in terms of your affection, your emotions, that's the gravy. But it's the presence, it's the connection, it's the identification that is the love. Presence, I suppose you could say, is the way to love. If we say love is the most important thing, that's not a bad answer. But the problem is with love is that it's abstract. It's subjective. What does love really mean? It probably means something a little bit different to each one of us. And it'll mean something different to you at different times in your life. So what is it that we're really going after if we say we're going after love? But when you say presence, presence is concrete. Presence is something that we can bank on. Presence is something that we can actually do. And so presence, if we can achieve that, we're achieving love at the same time or on the way to love. And so presence still, to me, is the most important thing that we can focus on. And everything else will take care of itself. So then maybe what we should be talking about is what's the way to presence. That's going to be important. How do we get to presence? And I really think the way to presence is prayer. Prayer is the way to presence. And God is both pure presence and pure love. So prayer is the way to all of that. Presence, love, God. But there's a problem. Because prayer, like love, is also abstract. It's also very subjective. Prayer means something a little different to each one of us. And it means something different at different points in your life. And so if we're going to use prayer as a way to presence, how are we gonna pray? What does that really mean? How do we go about doing this? Now the problem is that we've always equated prayer with words, with thoughts, and with needs. And so prayer tends to be spoken. Prayer tends to be thought. Prayer tends to be petitionary. It's asking for something out of our need. But look at the way that Jesus teaches prayer. And let's see if we can make some distinctions here that'll help us to hone in on how we can pray in a reliable and repeatable way that brings us to presence, which brings us to love. Take a look at Matthew 6, starting right at verse five. This is right smack in the middle. I mean, yeah, if you dropped the marble in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, you'd hit Matthew 6, 5. It's right in the middle of it. This is right before he gives the Lord's Prayer. But he says, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard by their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Look how Jesus is teaching prayer. Now he's contrasting it with the, with the Pharisees and with the other religious authorities of his time. That when the set times of prayer came down during the day, they made sure they were in the busiest intersection, busiest part of the marketplace, so everybody could see how holy they were. So he's making that distinction, but he's going deeper than that. He's talking about your prayer should be no show, it should be no words, and it really should be no needs. Your father already knows what you need, your father already knows what you're going to say. You don't need to bring those things to your father who resides in secret, who resides in silence. Go to your own secret place, both interiorly and exteriorly. He's saying, go away. Get out of the the realm of the marketplace. Get out of the realm of the crowd. Get out of the center of the flood. Get into a secreted place, but also interiorly. Can you quiet what's going on in there? Can you get off of the merry-go-round of those thoughts in your head. Go to your secret place interiorly, exteriorly. Withdraw in silence. And this is exactly what Jesus did. Just read the Gospels. Jesus is always escaping. He's always going off onto a mountaintop. He's going into a garden. He's going into the wilderness. He's gone for days on end. You can imagine when his followers say, there he goes again. When's he going to be back this time? but he had to go into his space into his closet he needed to find his father by withdrawing how do we typically pray think about how we typically pray here in in corporate prayer of course we're praying out for everybody and those corporate prayers can take all sorts of form you know from kind of a cheerleading session to a reprimand i mean how many times have you heard that in corporate prayer but they are meant to gather the group together to find common ground and thread, and there's nothing wrong with that. But Jesus is talking about a different kind of prayer here. How do we typically pray? Because the quality of our prayer, the way that we pray, is gonna reveal the belief that we really have in God's will for us. Think about that for a second. If our prayer is grandiose, if our prayer is big, over the top, if our prayer is public, if that's the way that we pray, then what we believe about God's will is that God's will is about our advancement. God's will is about establishing our our authority over others. If that's the kind of prayer that we pray typically, if our prayer is full of lots of words, goes on and on and on forever, then we probably believe that God's will is about clarity. God's will is about creating an understanding. And God's will is about establishing a kind of control, even if it's only mental over our circumstances. Trying to get every nook and cranny filled, trying to establish control over that thing, put a blanket over it. And if our prayer is petitionary, if it's always asking for things that we need, then what we believe about God's will is that it's about material blessings for us. No matter how virtuous the things that we want and need that we're asking for, it's still about those material blessings, fixing circumstances. And these aren't bad ways to pray. These are necessary ways to pray. We're gonna pray publicly. I do it all the time. It's not my favorite form of prayer, but I do it all the time. And sometimes I use too many words. I'm sure you have all experienced that in here. And yes, I do ask for things. And if my child were sick and in the hospital, you can bet that I would be asking for a healing. Of course, there's nothing wrong with these ways of praying. But they can be limiting to us. Because what really is God's will? What is Jesus trying to get at when he tells us, don't pray with words, don't pray with your needs, don't lead with that. Lead with something else. God's will And I know I've done this a million times, but if you're hearing it for the first time, great. God's will in Aramaic is Sebianah. Sebianah does not mean will the way we think of will in the West. The will that the Bible is talking about is actually translatable as the pleasure of God, the delight of God, the desire of God, the deepest purpose of God. There's the idea that the Sebiana, the, the will of God, is so deep, it's so absolute, that it's like the planets that will keep turning and turning in their orbits reliably, like a clock, throughout all time until something or someone would actually knock it off its orbit. It's like the DNA of a frog or a baby that is inexorably going to lead them to be that thing because it's so written into the fabric of the universe. God's will, his sebiana is like that. It's going to move in these directions and nothing can stop it because it's that deepest purpose. But it's also the desire, the delight, and the pleasure at the same time. It's the thing that makes God so happy to just follow the orbit of deepest purpose. So sebiana purpose, will, all tied together here. God's will is not a what. It's not the details that we obsess over. It's a how. How you live your life. The purpose with which you live your life. It's a way of living life. To live life as God lives life. That is being in God's will. And think about it Jesus never emphasizes advancement, never emphasizes authority. In fact, he tells us exactly the opposite. You want to lead everyone? Then sit at the back of the bus. You want to lead everyone? Then sit at the foot of the table. You want to be a leader? Then you serve. It's just the opposite. Jesus never emphasizes clarity or control. You want to follow me? Well, pick up your cross daily and come after me. It's the opposite. Can you celebrate uncertainty? Can you move into the disturbance can you allow yourself to let go of everything that you think is your clarity, that you think is your understanding, if you really want to follow me? And Jesus doesn't emphasize material blessings either. You know, don't store up here on earth your treasures. Put them in heaven, where they're not going to get eaten away or rusted away. It's the opposite. Jesus is more about subtraction than he is about addition. And his prayer reflects that. The prayer that Jesus prays, the prayer that Jesus is teaching us, the Lord's prayer itself is a prayer of subtraction. It's taking things away, stripping things and clearing them out so that something of real value can become present to us. Jesus tells us to pray in his name. And if we do that, if we pray in his name, then the prayers are going to be answered. And so we, thinking along the lines that we think, right, material blessings, asking for things, clarity, control. If we just get the right formula for the prayer in Jesus' name, then everything is going to be given to us because that's what the scripture says. And so we tack in Jesus' name on the end of every prayer. We do it in here too. And it can either be an absolutely beautiful reminder of what we're trying to do when we pray, to pray in Jesus' name, or it can just be some extra words that mean nothing, or worse, mean something superstitious. To pray in Jesus' name to pray in his Shem, Shema in Aramaic. The Shema means name, but it originally and in its roots means light or sound or vibration. And because it's moving from those roots, what it really encapsulates in a person is their essence, what they're really about. The Shema, the name, is the outer, countenance, the outer surface of something that reflects the inner essence. Everyone, every Hebrew name means something that is relevant and essential to that person's personality. They're not just random names, random sounds, but the Shema means something. Jesus Shem means something. It is the inner essence. It's what he's all about. It's that animating force. Just in communion today, we talked about the Dhamma, right? The wine, the the juice, the essence, the blood, all of that. He's saying, take that into yourself. This is everything that I am. This is what animates me. The Shem, the Shema is the same thing. It's everything that is essential to the person that defines them as who they are. To pray in Jesus' Shem, to pray in Jesus' Shema is to pray with the same essence, the same character, the same reputation, if you will, as Jesus. Which is the same as Jesus' will, isn't it? It's what gives him pleasure and delight. It's his desire, it's his deepest purpose, the Shem, the will, the name. And so when we are praying in Jesus' name, it's gonna be the definition of answered prayer. If we're praying the same as Jesus would pray, if we're praying the same as God would pray, how in the world could be anything except answered prayer? How could it be in any way divorced from, diverted from God's deepest purpose? God's essence. And what is God's essence? God is pure presence. God is pure oneness, connection. The Jews recognized this. It was their genius. They named their God oneness. Allah, Eloah in Hebrew, means oneness, multiple things functioning as one. Take a look at Psalm 32. And let's see how David tackles this, in this whole prayer issue here. Starting at verse 6, it's one of the most beautifully poetic passages, and you've heard songs that, that carry this lyric, I'm sure. Let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. I kind of messed that up. Let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah." Look what Jesus is saying there, if you reach through the poetic phrasing. He's saying, if if I don't hide from God, then God literally is my hiding place. Think about that. If I don't hide from God, God is my hiding place. He's my refuge. And paradoxically, it means that if David doesn't defend himself from God, if David doesn't hide from God, then God is going to be his defense. If David remains completely vulnerable before God, open before God, he will never be left defenseless. That's just wacky in terms of our experience. How can we undefend ourselves in order to be defended? to be preserved through any trouble that we can imagine and a whole heck of a lot more that we, that we can't imagine. Because for David, it's this fearless vulnerability, fearless vulnerability and this open connection as an attitude of life that is the prayer itself. It's the attitude by which he approaches the prayer that really is the prayer, not the words, not the form. The words can flow from the attitude but it's the attitude itself. What is David saying here? Pray when God may be found. That's an interesting phrase. Pray when God may be found. When is that? Well, it's not going to be during the flood of thoughts and emotions and the flood of all the things that need to be done, and it's not when the threats are at the door. That's not when God can be found because we're out to lunch by then, right? Think about those evacuation plans. You know when you go to a hotel and you walk down the hall and they got mounted on the wall in plastic? The evacuation plan. And it's, it's uh, got all the diagram of the floors and everything and the best way out in case of fire or whatever. How many of you actually look at those things? Anybody really look at an evacuation plan? Is anyone here OCD enough that you actually go and before you even put your bags in the, you're looking at the evacuation plan? Well, the trouble is with an evacuation plan, it's no good during the emergency <laughs> when the, the alarm is going and the sprinklers are going and the smoke's in the hallway, can't use it then. You need the evacuation plan to be studied before the storm. I think this is what David is getting at. All you faithful, pray to God when he may be found. When may he be found? When I have the chance to go offline. When I have the chance to move into my secret space. When I have the chance to be quiet and still and hear the stillness of God's voice, whose native language, by the way, is silence. Until I can practice that silence, how in the world can I speak to God with no loss in translation? While he may be found. And then if that is not enough to get the point home, he ends the phrase, the stanza here, with selah. Selah. It's a Hebrew word that's left untranslated. You know why it's untranslated in our in our uh, English translations? Because nobody knows what it means anymore. Even the ancients don't know what it meant. If you look in ancient commentaries on the scripture, everybody's coming up with different ideas of what selah means. And so obviously we don't have a clue. But everywhere it appears in the Old Testament, and it appears 74 times in the Old Testament, three times here in Psalm 32, 71 times in the entire book of Psalms, and three more times in the book of Habakkuk during a prayer that was also set to music. Every place that Salah appears is in a poem that was originally set to music. And so the thought is that it's some kind of musical direction. Something went on while the music was playing and this was being sung originally that needed to happen here. And so the, the idea is it was probably a pause of some sort. It was probably a, an interlude, maybe a musical interlude, where the lyrics stopped and the interlude took over. But something was going on, a rest, a stop, an interlude, a pause, something like that if it's a musical direction. Some point to salab being the word that comes out of a different root. Kalah was the root, which means to weigh, which means to balance, which means to measure. And so the idea is the way that we would say, you know, we're, we're going to uh, weigh, take the measure of a man. We're going to weigh our words carefully. So it means to consider. It means to, to turn aside and take some time to think about something for a second. To consider, to turn aside, to be present to, to try to take a measure of the gravity of something, but to become present to this. Others say it's in an lone word from the Aramaic because the Aramaic word for prayer is selah. Now, it's not spelled the same, and it has different roots. So even if it's not the same word, but they're two separate words, one in Hebrew, one in Aramaic, they have a complementary meaning that I think we need not to miss because of the way they're being used. And as we're trying to understand how is it that we pray, Selah, prayer in Aramaic, literally means to set a trap or to lay a snare. It's a hunting term. And so if you think about setting a trap in the forest, you clear out a space, you set the snare, you cover it over with leaves carefully, make sure it can't be seen, and then you retire into a blind, and you wait patiently for something to happen, silently, still, completely still, so that you don't scare away the prey. Waiting, leaning in, inclining toward, listening intently, expectantly, waiting for something to happen. This is what salah means. This is the Hebrew understanding of prayer. It is the inclining toward, it's the leaning in. It's literally setting a trap for God and waiting for something to happen. Connect that with salah, which means to weigh, to balance, to measure, to turn aside, to consider, to look at the gravity of something. And you're seeing what is going on here. What is happening with prayer? It is a turning aside. It is a opening up, a clearing out. And then it is a leaning in and being present to, being present to. Moses exemplifies this perfectly. His life is divided into three sets of 40. And wherever you see 40 in the Bible, it's a time of trial and testing into a rebirth. And so his 40 years as a prince of Egypt then turns over to 40 years in the desert in the, in the in the backwater of the Midian as a shepherd for the next 40 years. Could there be a greater contrast from being at the seat of power in Egypt, this great civilization, to being out in the back of beyond as a shepherd for the next 40 years? But during those 40 years where he is quiet, he is out with his sheep for months at a time, weeks at a time, not another human being around, just tending the sheep, being conscious of what the sheep need, but with not a whole heck of a lot else to do. It's not like being a farmer where there's lots of work to do. You just got to be present to the sheep. Make sure they don't wander off. Make sure nothing attacks them. Make sure they get water and pasture. All that time to develop what many Jews have called the shepherd consciousness. That consciousness that sees significance in the most insignificant things, that is present to everything without judgment, just present to it. So after 40 years, when Moses is tending his sheep and walking along in the middle of the wilderness and he sees a bush that is burning, that he probably 30 or 40 years ago would have walked right past because bushes do catch fire in the desert. There's creosote bushes and bushes that have a high enough oil content that anything can set them off. I'm sure he'd seen them before. But with his shepherd consciousness, he looks at this and he says, wait a minute, there's something different about this bush. It's burning, but it's not being consumed. And he actually says in his mind, let us turn aside and consider this. Selah, the turning aside, the measure of the gravity of something, the curiosity that actually moves into action and takes him off his agenda, takes him off his path to turn aside and consider this, to find himself on holy ground where he needs to take off his shoes, to selah, pray, pray. Salah as preparation for Salah prayer. This is what David is driving toward, trying to get us to understand. This is what Jesus is driving toward, trying to get us to understand. And Paul doesn't want to be left out in in the back 40. So if you take a look at Romans 8, look what Paul says, right at verse 26. He says, In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Look what Paul is saying there. He's saying there is a special interaction with God when we release our mental control that our words represent. Let go of the words. Let go of the imagined control and just fall into a deeper space. At that moment, the spirit can intercede at a nonverbal level. We don't even know what to pray for. How many times have you gone into prayer that way? I feel a need for something, but I don't even know what it is. I don't even know how to pray. It doesn't matter. Show up. Be present. Fall into that deeper place because the spirit will intercede with pure Presence, pure knowing in secret. Whole different way to pray. Now you may be asking, but doesn't the Bible tell us that we're supposed to pray for specific things? Yes, it does. So what are we supposed to do with that? (laughs) It does. And that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. But even here, even where we are praying for specific things, the presence still seems to be a priority. Take a look at James 5 starting in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much." Is anyone suffering? Pray. Is anyone cheerful? Pray. Is anyone sick? Call the elders and pray. (laughs) It's the same solution no matter what. Pray. Pray. Why? Why is James so high on prayer? What's the common thread here that you're seeing between all of these instances? It's presence, isn't it? It's connection to God and to each other. This is what he's trying to establish. Pray, anoint, offer in faith, and it will restore the sick and will forgive sins. And I guess the question would be always, every single prayer that we pray in faith, do we get the result that we're looking for? Have you ever prayed that someone will be healed and they weren't? Did you ever pray for something that you really needed and thought was an absolutely valid and virtuous thing to pray for and it didn't happen? Can we say that every prayer is always going to end in the result that we pray for physically? No. So what's going on? Does that mean we just didn't pray with enough faith? Man, that has been beaten over my head. I'm sure you probably all have instances where that happened. We just didn't have enough faith, brother. Come on. And now I've got guilt on top of everything else that I was having a lack of before because I didn't have enough faith. That's just cruel. That's abusive. Confessing to one another, praying for one another, is always restorative. You know, I hated going to confession when I was a kid in the Catholic Church. But I think there's something missing when we don't have that ability to confess to one another. One of the beautiful things about the 12-step groups is they give us the opportunity to talk to one another and to confess to one another. Even if it's only within the fourth step, isn't that what we're doing? Why is that so restorative? Why is that so important to do? And maybe not the fourth step, but the fifth step, where you actually tell it to somebody else. You know, To go through that process and to let it out to somebody else. To break your own resistance to someone else hearing your dark secrets is so liberating. We don't have that formally anymore. But this is what James is saying. Confess to one another. It's restorative. Pray for one another. It's restorative. This is where it's going. Everything that he's talking about binds a community together. It brings comfort for those who are suffering. And... Often, it brings physical healing as well. But the most important element, ingredient in all of this is the presence. And in presence is the best environment for healing. You know, medical studies have shown that people of faith, people who pray, they heal better and faster than people who don't. That's just science. They don't really know why, they almost chalk it up to attitude or whatever but it's presence that is making the difference. It's presence that is releasing any blockages and allowing people to move forward again. This is where, even when the, the scripture is telling us, pray for the things you need, your pray will, prayer will be heard, we have to understand what they mean by that. James finishes up with an example, and he uses Elijah as his example. And it's really interesting. So if you take a look at James... It's just the next verse, verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Just a man, just a guy, right? And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Oh, there's a prayer asked and answered, huh? Huh? then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. What is he talking about here? According to James, Elijah's prayer had specific results and spectacular results. To pray for a drought and then pray for rain, and it actually happens. But if we look closer... And we read between the lines here. The first thing we notice is that Elijah actually didn't pray for a drought. Take a look where this comes from at 1 Kings, chapter 17, verse 1. Now, Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilad, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, surely there will be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. He doesn't pray for rain. But there's an interesting phrase there. He stands before God. And it turns out that standing before God is a Hebraism. It's a Hebrew way of expressing solidarity with God, oneness with God, presence with God. And in his case, being representative of God. As Elijah stands and is telling what the Lord is saying, it's as if the Lord is standing there himself. Elijah knows God's goodness. He knows that the result of turning away from God is going to have catastrophic consequences. He knows that. Generations before, Moses cursed anyone who would turn away from the law that he brought down from Sinai for the people. And he said, if the people turn away from these precepts, if the people turn away from their God, it will not rain upon the earth and there won't be dew and the crops will not grow. Moses is saying, if the people turn away, the land will dry up. The land will not be nurturing. The people will not be able to live anymore. And Elijah knew this. And he knew that because Ahab had absolutely turned away, he had reestablished altars to Baal, the Canaanite god, and was actively uh, practicing worship to foreign gods, he knew that this was going to be the consequence. His solidarity with God allowed him to have the conviction and the confidence to stand up and speak truth to power, truth to the king. This is going to happen unless you turn from your ways. That is usually not a message you want to give to a king. His conviction came out of his solidarity with God. And then, notice the threeness after three years the rains are gonna return. Three is a number of perfection. Three is a number of completion. As the time is complete, it is time for the rains to return, for life to continue. Look what uh, is said here at 1 Kings 18. Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, the mountain, and he crouched down on the earth and put his face between his knees. We talked about this on Wednesday. I love that image. He crouches down on the ground with his face between his knees. Can you just see that? Can you see that posture of submission, of deference? He said to his servant, "'Go up now and look toward the sea.' So he went up and looked and said, "'There is nothing,' and he said, "'Go back.' Seven times he says, go back. And it came about at the seventh time that he said, "'Behold,' this is the servant speaking, "'a cloud as small as a man's hand "'is coming up from the sea.' and he Elijah said go up and say to Ahab prepare your chariot and go down so that the heavy shower does not stop you and in a little while the sky grew black with clouds and wind and there was a heavy shower Elijah prays for rain but i want you to notice the way that he prays for rain he prays 7 times 7 is a number for the hebrews of spiritual perfection there are 6 physical directions up down side to side back to front one more than that is the spiritual direction that is perfect. And one more than seven is eight, which is a number of rebirth. Perfection, spiritual perfection. In other words, Elijah is praying consistently and without pause until something happens. Marion has a little sign in our house, and it's push period U period S period H period and it stands for pray until something happens that's literally what he's doing he's praying until something happens and he will not stop because he knows that it's going to happen he doesn't know when he doesn't even know how necessarily maybe it's connected to his prayer but he's going to stay in that posture he's going to stay in that attitude in that presence until something happens you ever heard the saying all is going to be well in the end if it's not well it's not the end. It's kind of like that. This prayer will be fulfilled. And if it's not fulfilled, then it's not time to stop praying. It's like we're looking at prayer not from the aspect or the perspective of the outcome, but the perspective of the presence that continues it, continuing to move through and over and over. Prayer is the interface, if you will, between our will and God's will. It's the connection point. It's the funnel. It's the conduit. The connection between our wills. Prayer is the vehicle by which we can stand with God, stand before God. It is a vehicle for presence. And prayer is answered in this spiritual perfection, in this connection. And that spiritual perfection is not the way we think of perfection. This perfection is going to be experienced as lacking nothing. It's going to be experienced as everything being exactly as it should be. Ever had a moment like that? Everything is just the way it's supposed to be. Nothing feels lacking. Everything is fine. If I added one more thing to it, it wouldn't be perfect anymore. If I took one thing away, it wouldn't be perfect anymore. This is just enough. Just right. Don't mess with it. (laughs) What do you pray for when you feel no need? What do you pray for when everything is exactly the way that it should be? There are no words for that. And that's the point. If we can learn to pray with no words and just pure presence, what we will experience is that everything is as it should be, that there is no need, there is no nothing to pray for. Presence is the definition of answered prayer. Prayer is the way to presence and the way to love if we can practice it in the way Jesus intended Let's pray. And Father, we're going to pray with words this morning because that's what we have in this setting. But even as we pray with words, whether it's alone in our minds, speaking words, reciting the prayers that our forefathers have given us, we ask that it would always point to a deeper understanding, a deeper attitude, a deeper posture that is simply present. That the words of our prayer would funnel us, move us into that place beyond words, where we just are with you. And that more and more, we would experience those moments where there is nothing lacking, where everything is just as it should be. And we realize in this moment, we have hit seven. We have hit that perfection that complete presence with you which no doubt we will move back out of focus with in the next moment but we remember where we were and we know we can come back anytime we want because you are always perfectly present to us so thank you for that Father help us more and more to practice presence in all we do and understand that we are practicing prayer at the same time we love you Lord Never let us forget, we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus, Shem, in his Shema. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand.